Hello, and welcome to The History Voyager, a podcast about history. My name is Benjamin Kitchings. As always, there are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you very, very much for listening to mine. This is part 12 of my deep dive into the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918. There's a fascinating riddle in history that I guess goes all the way back to the Victorians. And the riddle in history is essentially, how did the Roman Empire fall? How exactly did this massive empire that was huge by any standard, even today, how did it exactly fall? And this has perplexed historians for since the Victorian times. And there have been lots of ideas about why the the Romans fell and some of them today because we're a more scientifically literate society have chosen to interweave climate data volcanic eruption data and overlay that with bread yields and things like that and all that has I think a great deal of you know relevance and thought but there's a thought that I have that actually I came across that the the most I guess the most the thought that I like about how did the Roman Empire sort of die die out was that at least to the Romans there there hadn't been a civilization as big or as complex as the Roman civilization was and they kept encountering these problems that happen when you have big, complicated things that you have to run. And they simply, the toolkit they had wasn't adequate enough for the task. And you see that again and again and again. And, and eventually things just sort of snowballed and and it, it went away, it died. And, I, you know, I see that also in the Spanish flu that the Spanish flu happened, and I've said this over and over again, the Spanish flu happened sort of during a technological explosion that happened all over the world. And the powers that be, they, they wanted the goodies of the technological explosion. And to the extent that they had conceived of or thought about kind of the 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 negative effects or the not so goody effects the industrial revolution they certainly hadn't thought anything about the disease and the industrial revolution they hadn't conceived of the disease as a thing that was affected by industrialization they were still treating the disease as though they existed in a very much a pre-industrial era i think because they hadn't really thought about how the industrial revolution would impact or change the world in which they lived a lot of these doctors a lot of the people were still laboring under the thought that Italians and Germans and Spanish etc and so on were actually different human different humans entirely different biological entities 
that shouldn't mix. And here again, you see this very strange dichotomy. There was a very, very strange dichotomy that doesn't exactly break down along class lines or job lines or whatever, but you could totally see that there were some people who did not think that. And they would, they would say this because, take for example San Francisco, which was very new in 1918 to being a big city. It was essentially shaking off its frontier town ethos. So you had people of different European extractions working side by side, and you would have somebody would get the flu, and the person was Italian, and they would get the flu, and, and so you'd have this Anglo-American person, and, and they were writing to their mother or their girlfriend or whoever, and they would say, well, you know, Giuseppe has the flu, and depending on how you read it, they would they would say it like, they would give this winking acknowledgement that they could also get the flu too, or that, you know, from Giuseppe, or that Giuseppe's, you know, imaginary, you know, vulnerability towards the flu was was imaginary. It was literally, he was no more or less, you know, able to get the flu than the Anglo-American who was writing the thing was. But that wasn't what, quote, polite society held. And, you know, it's it's hard as a modern person to look at that and to know exactly. I would love to go back and ask these letter writers, did you know that you could get the flu from Giuseppe? Did you understand that? Is that a thing you understood? Because here's something that that is very interesting. When they tallied up the deaths of the flu, as I covered in my How Not to Die of the Flu podcast, or you know, how not to how to die of the flu and how not to die of the flu, there were unofficial flu deaths that weren't a lot of them weren't even tallied. So you might say, Well, Giuseppe died of the flu or or so-and-so died of the flu. But they might not be official. It might just be anecdotal. And let's also remember that if Giuseppe didn't take out a life insurance policy or and also wasn't a prisoner or had no business with the government of any type, he probably would not have had access to a, a test or even to be able to be marked down as this is a person that has the flu. And you see this with especially the Asians or the East Asian folks who essentially, at least in, you know, San Francisco, were widely held to be totally immune to the disease. And the reason, logically, they thought was because, well, obviously they're not showing up with to the doctor with flu-like symptoms, which is patently stupid to a modern ear, I hope, especially when you learn that there was a wave of pneumonia that was sweeping through Chinatown that was killing 
both the Chinese and the Japanese Americans at quite prodigious rates, incredibly prodigious rates. And it wasn't for decades that they were even included in with the flu deaths. Now, another way to not die of the flu was, remember, the flu was officially recorded at first, not even by governments, but by insurance companies. So another way to not die of the flu was if you didn't have an insurance policy. Well, a huge amount of people in America were essentially what we call unbanked. That is, they weren't even serviced by banks. So if you're not serviced by banks, you're probably not going to run out and get an insurance policy. So again, that's another thing. And here's something fascinating. The Germans were thought of as very healthy people. So healthy, in fact, that they were just immune to the flu. So it, it was thought. Now, obviously, they were immune to the flu, the thinking was, because the flu, it was held by an awful lot of people, even some people in the government, even some people, the brass, fighting World War I. The flu was actually chemical warfare because, don't you know, the Germans were masters of the chemical warfare. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is because it brings to mind a fascinating puzzle. When you look at people riding home to mom, because remember, San Francisco was a new town, so there was lots and lots of people riding home to mother. When you would look at these letters, what they would routinely talk about was how Giuseppe didn't come into work today. Neither did the Polish fella, and neither did the German fella. Oh no, they died of the flu. Now, here's what's interesting. So what you have is the regular workers were at least, you know, acknowledging that they could die of the flu. Or were they not? You know, it's hard to read sarcasm. So you can debate that one way or the other. But there were a lot more regular folks thinking that so-and-so did die of the flu and so-and-so didn't die of the flu being bunk. And especially with the Japanese and Chinese, there were lots of people that even though the conventional wisdom was they couldn't possibly get the flu, there were lots of regular, you know, Americans of all extractions that thought, oh, no, 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 they're just as capable of getting the flu as anybody. In fact, they were thought of as more capable of getting the flu because the Chinese food and the Japanese food was believed to be made out of cats and dogs, which were thought to be, you know, carriers of the flu. Now, of course, the most amazing and interesting thing was that black people were thought by people in every town and city there was to be carriers of the flu, whether or not they had it or not. One thing I wanted to talk about was the PPE, that is Personal Protective Equipment 1918 style. That was a mask, and it was usually a mask with three layers of gauze sewn in the, you know, between the two layers of cloth. And people thought, well, it'll work or not work, but it was very much legally accepted. You know, lots of stores required it. 
you only have to look at photos of people wearing the mask to realize that it was very, very common for people to wear the mask. And it wasn't like it is today, unfortunately, with a seems to be a partisan divide or some sort of divide along ideological lines. In San Francisco, it was ubiquitous. But the problem was the mask didn't work. They thought that the flu virus was like a bug that would be stopped by a screen door. But of course it wasn't. It was much more microscopic than that. And that was, you know, I wonder if that was in the stories of the 1918 flu of the modern day. The other thing that you have to deal with when you're dealing with the 1918 flu is there were vaccine trials which were at the time widely reported to work largely because they wanted to reassure the public they really really wanted to reassure the public because the thing that you get from the letters from the doctors is the fear the abject fear like they didn't know what it was some of them in fact a lot of them legitimately thought that you know the the different nationalities were actually different biological beings and they were like oh my god this thing is spreading and it shouldn't be able to do that we don't know why or how and they were legitimately terrified and of course the virus also happened to play into another basically 19th century convention which was essentially that essentially the the news media of the day would not cover the bad news in their town. Now, if you'll remember, in a previous episode, I had talked about why that was, which was essentially because you wouldn't want to attract attention to the bad stuff in your town because then the thinking was you would either drive people away or perhaps the newspaper was only really written for the haves in your town in the first place. So the the idea of the news culture was different. Well, one of the things that this would cause would be that people in America, even the haves in America, really had no idea how far the 1918 virus was spreading because there wasn't really this thought, even at the national level, to basically track it until much, much later and even then, when they did track it, remember the, the basically what we today call public health was, to put it mildly, was essentially third world, which essentially means that it, it wasn't really, like each little town was, was their own health unit, if even that. It could just be the parish or the, the church congregation. And remember, too, that a lot of these people, a lot of the people in America were Protestant. So where the Catholics might have a hospital which would serve the parish, if you were Protestant, there wasn't really this, a like a, um, a bureaucracy that would govern a piece of earth where people lived. So it was basically congregation to congregation. So really, there, there was no real way to know how the virus was spreading. 
or even in a lot of cases, if it was spreading. So the notion that it was actually a weapon of war put on by the Germans, who, remember, were supposed to be vastly superior in chemical warfare. And remember, too, that a lot of our, that is Americans, a lot of Americans essentially were German. So it's like essentially, you know, you want to talk about oh, well, the Germans are much superior in chemical warfare, so perhaps this is chemical warfare. And what was interesting was this idea went as far even as the brass. Now, interestingly, the doctors, they didn't really, in the military, they didn't really think it was, you know, chemical warfare. And neither, interestingly enough, did the actual people in the trenches because they could see the effects. Well, this is gas. And this, you know, Johnny over here, he just dropped out of the flu. But the point is that the brass, and remember, this is a very top-down reporting. The brass didn't really think that. The military brass. So they're feeding the, the government basically wrong information. Now, by the time the flu gets out of Kansas and gets around in the country in places like Florida and New Jersey and California, and by the time you've got people who have the flu who obviously didn't go overseas yet, by that time, you've got a problem, and the government knows it, and they're starting not to be able to wage war. So at that point, they start to think, you know, at first they think, well, maybe these people are racially inferior. But then they gradually start to pick up on the idea that there's an actual disease that's actually killing people that we're calling the flu, so let's call it the flu. So, but it, here again, this, you know, sort of the whole thing about private lives and private thoughts kind of thing. Some of the doctors thought it was a disease and some of the doctors thought it was chemical warfare. Now, what's really interesting is that in the fall of 18, in the fall of 1918, there was a divorce case in San Francisco. And the reason it's interesting is because in the fall of 18 in San Francisco, there were bodies piling up that we now attribute to the flu. And some of these bodies were attributed to the flu at the time. But what's fascinating is that in September of the year, it was made a reportable disease by the city fathers and the health department. A Mr. Wagoner, traveling from Chicago, had had the flu and brought it to San Francisco. He was reported in the Chronicle as having the flu on the 24th of September. By the 28th of September, California decided that the flu was a reportable disease. What's fascinating about this is that it flies in the face of this narrative that we can see of cities not being aware of other cities' involvement in the flu. Now, in October of the year, there was the Doyle's divorce case. Mr. Doyle had the flu. He announced this in the court, and there was panic. There was absolute panic in the building. Now, that's fascinating. It's fascinating because 
it lends itself to this thinking that there was kind of this underground network, if you will, of, of knowledge about the flu. Much like the disease going around today, there's kind of this underground network, some of which might be, um, you know, might be good knowledge and some of it not, might not be good knowledge. But it flies in the face of this idea that the media was deliberately keeping people in the dark about the flu. Because maybe the mainstream media was, but people were learning about it through letters or however. Telephones were also, you know, new during the 1918 flu. And in fact, telephones were thought to be a cause of the flu. Mr. Doyle's death is fascinating for another reason. Because he was one of those rapidly accelerating cases of the flu where he was well enough to present himself to court, but by the time the evening came, he was dead. Now, one knows today that the flu doesn't kill people like that. The normal flu doesn't kill people like that. Not to where you're well enough in the morning and dead by evening. So that's, again, why it's fascinating. But... What was even more fascinating to me was how people, again, thought only poor people in San Francisco could get the flu because, obviously, you know, they had this idea that the poor were packed, packed close together and, and they were also not Anglo-American. So, obviously, only the poor people could get it because Anglo-Americans couldn't get the flu. It was really very fascinating. But yet, you see there, people were scared enough to step away from him, to get away from him. So obviously, it begins to wonder if, to coin a phrase, if there's sort of a top rail of knowledge that's like the official knowledge and a bottom rail of knowledge that's maybe more what people think. I don't know. It's The whole thing really is just fascinating to me. San Franciscans were starting to notice the the flu was attacking their lives in fundamental ways. First of all, the garbage pickup was hit hard by the flu, really hard by the flu. So too, weirdly, was the telephone operators, which, again, helped feed into the idea that the telephone was actually a spreader of the flu, that you could maybe get it from the, you know, talking into the phone or from the other person on the phone. That's what was so fascinating, that they thought you could get it from talking to another person on the phone rather from touching the phone itself. But because of this, because there was a lack of sanitation workers and because the telephone operators had it and also because the fire department for some reason, was hit very, very hard by the flu. San Francisco became a very dangerous place to live. Also, as with every place in civilian life in America, there was a very large shortage of doctors. Every healthy doctor who could was sent to Europe. So obviously this hampered the flu's treatment and subsequent recovery and I would argue even the research into the flu itself. The immigrant population, of course, the I'm talking about the European immigrant population, 
was hit the hardest in the fall of 18 wave. The Italians were hit hardest, followed by the Irish. The Chinese and the Japanese, at least as far as official numbers, basically were left largely unscathed, which leads us modern people to think that they just didn't seek medical attention or essentially medical attention might have even ignored them, and that's probably exactly what happened. But what's more evident, if you look between the lines, if you read the margins of the story, there's sort of this unknowable network of knowledge that these people were were getting their knowledge from because it very, very clearly wasn't what we would today call uh, the mainstream media because the, the, upper, the upper echelons of this were very, very slow to react to it and to, to treat it with the gravity that it needed to be treated with. By November of 18, there was a very serious, I guess, debate about should we wear a mask and should we not. There were people wearing cowbells on their neck in San Francisco, uh, basically like, I'm not wearing a mask. Look at me. I have a cowbell on my neck. You know, very much sort of uh, attention-seeking behavior. There were other stores that would say, like, you can't um, come into the store without a mask. And yet, and still, this was very much sort of the government was divided. The Red Cross uh, essentially had doled out 100,000 masks by the late November of 18. And they were very, very late in the game, essentially, in San Francisco. On November 21st, 1918, there was a very serious naval victory for the British against the Germans in World War One. This was a massive cause of celebration in San Francisco. This was also the day that San Francisco decided not to make masks mandatory anymore. And one wonders, a lot of historians today wonder, was this because... You know, people, some people, maybe a lot of people, thought the Germans were essentially behind the attack. And if so, what would they have thought the correlation was between the flu and the Germans? We really don't know. You know, history is not omniscient. But it is one of the things that throws a monkey wrench into whether or not all of the powers that be really honestly thought in their heart of hearts that the virus known as the Spanish flu actually was a virus and not, say, a weapon of war from the Germans. I mean, that really is something people think about. In the mind of the people of San Francisco, they had essentially conflated the war with the virus. As soon as the war was over in November of 18, they assumed that basically the virus was over. The population was jubilant and happy. The U.S. had won a serious victory. North and South had fought together. The Civil War, the horrors of the war that so many people in San Francisco remembered their fathers and grandfathers talking about was being papered over. And basically, San Francisco was trying to get back to normal. Civil libertarians were talking about how masks were tyranny and they were glad not to have masks at all. Thanksgiving was being enjoyed mask-free for the first time in a while. People were very, very happy. People basically essentially ignored the fact that 
the flu was becoming very virulent in places like suburban San Francisco and also in San Diego and Los Angeles. In fact, the flu was essentially turning a corner, basically, if you will. And we're going to talk about that corner next time on the History Voyager. I hope you're having a very good day. I certainly am. This podcast is very interesting for me to do. I'm learning a whole lot. I hope you are too. This podcast is growing by leaps and bounds. I'm really amazed at the success it's having. Thank you so much and have a good day. Bye-bye now.